welcome to the Grow My Salon Business podcast, where we focus on the business side of hairdressing. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and I'll be talking to thought leaders in the hairdressing industry, discussing insightful, provocative, and inspiring ideas that matter. So get ready to learn, get ready to be challenged, get ready to be inspired, and most importantly, get ready to grow your salon business. I love stories about people who come up with seemingly crazy ideas and then, despite all the odds being stacked against them, eventually, they still manage to come out the other end of it a success. And then people say things like, they were lucky, or right place, right time. But it's not about luck, or right place, right time. It's about courage. It's about grit, determination, and self-belief. And maybe with a sprinkling of being a little bit crazy at the same time, in the nicest possible way. People like this always have great stories about how they got there, whether it's about what they had to sacrifice in life to make it happen or how they put everything on the line and could have lost it all more than once. These are the stories of real entrepreneurs. They don't listen when people say you should give up or it will never work or it's not possible or you're being unrealistic. They just blindly carry on and do whatever it takes until they succeed. My guest on today's podcast is one of those people. Her name is Josie Bryce-Smith, and she is the CEO and co-founder of Original and Mineral, or abbreviated to O&M, a hair color product line that she co-founded in Australia 10 years ago and now has a rapidly expanding product portfolio and global presence. I've really enjoyed talking with her as she is so open and vulnerable and humble and honest and inspiring about what it takes to succeed. In today's podcast, we'll discuss why she thought that the world really needed another color line, the financial risks that she's taken to get there, partnerships, and the challenges of being a woman in business today, and lots more. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Josie. Hi, Anthony. Thanks so much for having me. My absolute pleasure. I'm really looking forward to this. I mean, we haven't met uh, before, but I've been doing a little bit of research on you and stuff. And, you know, we've had a bit of a warm up chat before we started recording. And uh, I'm really excited about, you know, this this discussion because, you know, I've never had anyone in the sort of position that you're in um, on the show before. And I know there'll be a lot of people that will be really intrigued with what your story is. So um, I'm going to pass it over to you. Uh, I always do this at the beginning. I like people to sort of introduce themselves and and give their, you know, two-minute backstory. So, you know, who is Josie Bryce-Smith? And for anyone who hasn't heard of it, what exactly is O&M? Um, so, well, yeah, that's a big question. Well, I grew up in the UK, so I'm an English Australian um, who had no background in hairdressing, but was always very passionate about my own hair. And I left England uh, when I was 25 and moved to Australia and fell into the hairdressing industry, which is where my brand O&M was born over a decade ago. So... Um, O&M is a clean hair care brand. We were the first pioneer of ammonia-free hair color a very long time ago with the believers that hair colors are health choice like food or makeup or cleaning products. And 
I was concerned about the health of the hairdressers in my salon and the clients that were coming in. And little did I know what I was starting when I decided to make products. Um, so, yeah, I'm a, a lover of life, quite a free spirit and uh, someone who spent uh, most of my time blindly backing myself, even when I got it wrong. Right. Okay. Well, there's lots of good stuff there to, to dig into, which I'm excited to. So you're not a hairdresser. You, you've never actually done hair. That's not your thing. No, I'm not a hairdresser. Um, I've worked in the hairdressing industry for 20 years now. My uh, ex-husband, who I owned the salon with, he is a hairdresser and I managed the salon for nine years. So, you know, I feel that hairdressers are my tribe. I love them. Uh, so, yeah, I've got a long history in hairdressing. But, no, I've actually never done any hair. Right. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so what? Uh, why Australia? Like you, you, you were English. I take it your husband's English. No, so my my ex-husband. Yeah, my. So I met Alan uh, in the UK. I was working uh, in media in London, and he was working in a hair salon in Soho. And yeah. my mum had always uh, brought me up to, you know, avoid chemicals, uh, go with natural products, and so she'd found this ammonia-free hair color in London. And so that's where I met Alan. And it turned out we live next door to each in London, each other in London, which was so random. And after about three months, he came back to Australia to open a hair salon and I came for a holiday. And I, of course, had watched a lot of Home and Away and Neighbours growing up in the UK. Poor thing. And, <laughs> and so I was desperate to go to Australia. And so I was very happy when he invited me on a holiday. And it was just when the Olympics had happened. And and so I came in 2000 just after the Olympics. So there was obviously a lot of news coverage of Australia. So that was what brought me here. And then I started working in media in Sydney. I was media planning and buying for Wrigley's, the chewing gum. And after about six months when they opened the salon, um, I started working there to help them with marketing. And so that was when my career in hairdressing began and you know I really loved working in the salon I actually still say that I reckon running a salon was the hardest job that I've ever done I mean it's the most rewarding as well because hairdressers are such fun colorful creative people and you know you get to meet so many clients and just seeing that relationship between hairdresser and their client that's almost like they're an extension of their family like there's so much love there and it was partly that that made me become concerned about when I was working on the reception, I couldn't believe the smell and fumes of the hair color and the perms. And this was in 2000. So 20 years ago, all, all products were much more highly chemical and toxic. And I just thought, wow, these hairdressers don't know what they're breathing in every day and people don't know what they're putting on their hair. And so that was what started it. So here you are, you're working in the salon in uh, Sydney and you get this idea. You're not a hairdresser. You've worked in media. You're 25, 26, whatever it is. And you get this idea that you can create a color line because you don't like the smell of the chemicals and all that. That is a huge leap. That's a, it's, a, it's a massive leap. So tell me what, what's behind that. Where did you get this idea that you could do that. It's one thing being in a salon and not liking the smell and, and getting dermatitis or whatever, but it's another thing again, thinking that 
I can actually develop, you know, develop a color line. So, so talk to us about that. Yeah. So um, what happened was we decided to actually try and source this ammonia free hair color that Alan had been using in the UK. So we went on to make some changes to it later and develop our own. But initially we just found that one in a very small manufacturer in Ireland. And so we started to import that for our own salon. So really we just wanted to for it for our own clients and uh, for our own team. And also, you know, we had people that had very bad contact dermatitis and pregnant women and, there was, you know, lots of people that were concerned. And um, so initially we just found this ammonia-free color and we brought it over. It was, and then what happened was we kept that to ourselves for eight years. And we very quickly became known as Sydney's first organic salon. We were the original stockist of MOP, which was modern organic products, which was shampoos and conditioners that, that were being sold in Australia. That's a UK product. And so we had that and we had the color. And so, so originally we sort of tested it by using this existing product. And then what happened was we, we started to get a lot of other people ring us saying, could they have the color? And so initially we just brought a container load over and then we started selling it from the salon you know, we were we were packing. We had the apprentices like in a line. We were like a shelter's workshop, packing the the product and sending it out. I was typing the invoices in Word on the reception. We weren't asking anyone for any money. Like I had no idea, you know, what we were doing. Mm. Um, and it built up to about twenty five thousand dollars a month doing that. And then I thought, you know, I really think that this could have legs. But I understood about brand. And there were certain changes that I wanted to make to the color. Yeah. And this was where the, the journey got very bumpy um, because, as you rightly pointed out, like taking on making color is not a small obstacle. And you've got, yeah. you know, global companies like Weller and Procter & Gamble and L'Oreal that spend, you know, tens of millions researching these things. And, and to take that on, you know, it was probably quite a crazy task. But to be honest, I never really thought about it. We had the hairdressers to test it. I believed what they were saying. We could see the results. So, yeah, that's, you know, that was the, how the manufacturing journey began. And the thing was, was, you know, that we had ammonia-free color in 2000 and probably by about 2010, other ammonia-free colors had started to come out, which was fine because, a, there's enough room for everyone, and B, it told the consumer that this was a real thing, it was the future, uh, that they didn't have to use this very strong-smelling ammonia colour. So, but we, I was getting a lot of calls of people saying to me, is the colour PPD-free? And if you Google PPD, which is paraphenyldiamine, it's basically the dark dye in all hair colour. So it's in high, the highest concentration in black, and it's not in a, in a blonde, for example. But the most, the, the vast majority of hair colour is brown hair, grey coverage. Um, and so that's high concentrations of PPD. And if you look at it online, you'll see that people's face swell up, their eyes go into the back of their head. They, you know, even in the UK, two people have died from putting one girl at Halloween, put a, 
a hair color on and went into a coma. Uh, so people are going to have anaphylactic reactions. So I was getting all these people ringing me and I'm in Australia in this small salon and going, is it PPD free? So I decided to try and make the color PPD free. And that proved to be a seven year, very rocky journey. Mm-hmm. So hair color is a very tricky thing to do in answer yeah. to your question in short. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so the ori- original color was an off the shelf color that you were bringing in from Ireland, an existing brand that was ammonia free. But then you decided that you wanted to develop your own label brand. And so you went to manufacturers, I presume in Italy for hair color. I mean, most of them come out of Italy to, to, you know, to source ingredients and someone who would make a bespoke product for yourself. Is that the sort of journey it went through? Yeah, well, I wasn't that clever. I'm now a little cleverer and I know that all hair color is in Italy. But initially, Mm. I actually went to a manufacturer in the US and they had made a very big multinational brand um, that was not ammonia free, but was in the kind of natural space. They were claiming a very high percentage of naturally derived ingredients. Mm. So I wanted, so they said to me, oh, we made this brand so we can do the PPD free color. And so I spent five years with them um, and pretty much everything that you can possibly think went wrong, went wrong. So I, I actually believe, I mean, there's quite a few PPD free colors now. I definitely made the mistakes for everyone else. And, you know, we had a product that was unstable, that separated, that oxidized, like lots of things happened. So that was a very difficult five years. And the company nearly went under multiple times. Um, It caused a huge amount of problems with my business partner. Um, I had a business partner who was a minority shareholder who, Uh, sat on the sidelines and criticized a lot, didn't want to get involved in the business. Um, But when things went wrong, was incredibly unsupportive. So that was a huge journey. But, you know, that was my passion. I just felt that hair color was eventually going to become a health choice and that someone was going to take these chemicals out. And why not me? Mm. And the whole part of owning your own brand is that I realized after distributing somebody else's product, even just up to 25000 a month, I realized I was selling somebody else's product that they weren't as in love with it as I was. They weren't going to make the changes that I wanted to. And also, I wasn't going to be able to have the control that I wanted to. And so that was, you know, when we developed our own brand. Okay, well, let's dig into that story a little bit. Um, I'm curious about one thing. Uh, You're in Australia, um, you're English. Do you think you could have done the same thing in the UK? Because it's just an observation I make. I mean, I lived in Australia for a while. Uh, I now live, uh, you know, back in the UK. I've lived more of my life here than anywhere else. And, you know, there's quite a lot of hair product these days that is coming out of Australia. But when you think of manufacturers of hair product, you think of Germany, uh, you know, with Weller and Schwarzkopf. And, and you, you think of France with L'Oreal. And then you think of America with all the brands that have, you know, come out of the US. You don't tend to think of the UK. So I'm just curious as to what, what's your take on that? Is it some entrepreneurial spirit that, you know, you think is, is, you know, alive and well in Australia that sort of says to you that you can have a go and you can do this or, or, or what? Am I going off in the wrong direction completely? 
No, I I do think that there is an element to that. I think if I'd have stayed in the UK, I would have potentially for at least another five years stayed in corporate, climbing a corporate sort of career ladder. I was already frustrated with it because as a woman and then just even generally the pace that things go in corporate was very slow. Um, but when I first arrived in Australia, there were two things that I noticed immediately. One, there were no people. I was like, where are all the people? <laughs> I walked down Oxford Street in Paddington in Sydney <laughs> on a Saturday and I thought, no, there's been a bomb scare. Oh, there's been a bomb scare. That's why there's no people. Yeah. And I remember my friend saying to me, no, no, this is it. This is busy. And I was like, really? This is, it was weird. So that was one thing. And then I remember thinking there's a lot of opportunity here mm. because in, in the UK, there's a lot of competition, right? And in Australia, particularly at that time, because there was so much less people and there was a lot of small business, you could see that there was just more small business. There was a lot of opportunity for people. And I even remember one of my friends from the UK saying to me when I left, you're making career suicide going to Australia. And then another one of my friends started said to me when I started working at the, the hair salon, how do you feel going from quite a big career in advertising to working in a hair salon? And I remember at the time saying to them, I feel fine. How do you feel? Mm. And because, you know, I just thought, oh, this is great. I get to go to work every day with people who are really nice and I'm, I'm making a difference rather than I'm just in a corporate. So, no, I think, I do think that there's a lot of opportunity here. And I also think that there's something about the weather that people are generally happier yeah, no, I think without a doubt. I think Australia is like America in that context, in that um, they're both big countries, but uh, Australia, as you said, is a big country, same sort of landmass as, as uh, the United States, but there's 25 million people. I think there's only 5 million people in Sydney or something, you know, which is a significant amount of people, but it's a big country, so people are spread out. Uh, so, yeah, it, it does, uh, you know, feel unpopulated, and that has uh, advantages, um, especially at a time like this with COVID, et cetera, uh, and, and sometimes potentially disadvantages. But it is a little bit the Wild West in terms of it's more entrepreneurial there, a little bit like the United States, I think, whereas, you know, Europe, I think it's maybe harder sometimes to see the possibilities that you can that you can get something off the ground like this. So uh, anyway, um, let, let's, uh, let's get back into this. I wanted to ask you, are there, are there any particular mentors that you've had uh, in life or, or, you know, in business that, that have propelled you forward? Yes. Um, okay, so my, my shrink, as I call her, Catherine, she says to me, Josie, the world is your classroom and you're just learning, right? And once you see that everything is learning, you kind of have a different view on life and challenges. I've been very lucky along the way. I've had mentors all along the way, sort of sporadically, but all of them have come to me kind of energetically and free. I've never actually paid one. Um, and I think most significantly, my mentor now is a guy called Andrew, who I actually met probably 
four years ago now on a dating app. And um, it was really funny. We, um, he, we swiped each other and went for a coffee. And he's a serial entrepreneur. He left school when he was 15. He couldn't read and write. He's had multiple different businesses. He's a Kiwi, sold them. And we very quickly realized that we weren't for dating. And he said to me, you know, I've never met anyone with as much chutzpah as you in my life. And he said, you seem to be having some problems. Would you like me to help you? He said, I wish, you know, when I was your age, because he's, only about seven years older than me, but he said, I wish I had somebody who'd done it before who could help me. And so he has made a significant difference to me, which has made a significant difference to the business. So, but along the way, there've been other people. I've got my best friend who I worked with in advertising in the UK and she was my boss and has been my best friend for over 20 years. And she helped me enormously as well. She's been like a sounding board ever since the start um yeah I mean my dad died when I was 17 and he told me that I would be good in my own business and so I think I've spent a long time honoring that as well so yeah I think that all people are our mirrors and our teachers and if you're teachable you can learn from anyone Mm. and so I learn everywhere I've I've read, uh, so I know you talk openly about it, uh, about your dad before and that your dad, you know, passed away from cancer when you were, you know, a young woman. Um, Has that been any, has has that been a catalyst for developing products that are more healthy? Because there's often been, um, uh, what's what's the expression? There's often been a certain amount of data come out about cancer and hair color um, with various degrees of tenuous links, but there's quite a, uh, quite a lot of statistics around about that now. So I'm sort of wondering, it, was there any sort of connection driving you in that area? Definitely. So my, yeah, watching what happened to my dad and then his death, you know, scared the living daylights out of me and made me also value my health over anything and not sweat the small stuff. And I just, my mother, you know, really drummed into us to stay away from chemicals and, you know, use natural products. And that's definitely a massive driver. And I I really feel that, you know, cancer is just such a cruel disease. And I've seen more of it in recent times with two very close friends as well. And I I sort of feel that hair color is just my small corner of the planet that I can make a difference with Um, I do believe that it's historically a highly chemical product and so if we can have a cleaner version that's got less of these endocrine disruptors because cancer is so gene orientated and hormone orientated and we know so much about chemicals that disrupt our endocrine system and the disruption of that is what can trigger a gene or, you know, cause you to get diabetes or cancer or anything. So, yes, it's definitely um, it's definitely part of the, the mission that he's he's in that for sure. Mm. OK, so 
you know, you, I, I know you, you, you're not a hair colorist, you're not a hairdresser, um, but you bring this entrepreneurial spirit to it. And you're obviously a very, you know, capable businesswoman. Um, have you got, you know, because you're reinventing something or were reinventing something that didn't exist and you continue to reinvent things, it, 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 do, do you get really down and dirty and understand the, the, the science and the chemistry of, of what you're doing with hair color? you know, and what you want changed. And even though you may not know how to change it, but you're saying, I want this out. There's got to be a way to do it. Do you, are you really that involved in it? Absolutely. Yeah. So I spend a lot of time researching and looking at different products um, and then understanding different dyes and the way that they work. So even right now, uh, you know, part of my mission is that I, want to stay at the forefront of this clean technology and I believe that it needs to keep moving and so I went to the factory that I'm currently making with that is in Italy now they uh, I went to them two years ago and said I want to use this dye um, that I was interested in and they hadn't even heard of it and then I said to them I want to use it in this combination I want to take this dye out and they said that can't be done and so then I went to another factory and said the same thing, and then they made me some samples. And then, you know, I've gone back to my original factory, and now they've done it. So I don't – I'm not a chemist, but I, I think as well, because I'm not a chemist and I'm entrepreneurial, I sort of push for things that maybe people would go, oh, that hasn't been done, that can't be done. Mm. So I actually think it helps that I'm not a chemist. And then – but I, you know, work very closely with – Paul, who's the hairdresser that does all of our color testing. And so I will go to his salon. And originally, a real turning point came for the company in 2015, which was when we moved the product to Italy. And we'd gone through all of these product problems. And then I'd found this new factory in Italy. And to be honest, Paul, the guy who does our color testing, when we had all the problems, he actually resigned. And he said to me, I, I can't work I can't do this anymore. The manufacturer don't know what they're doing. I've got salons complaining. And he said to me, and you need to give up. And he said, I'm leaving. It was like a massive toy, toys out of the pram moment, but it was good because yeah. I thought, okay, the universe is sending me a message right now and he's speaking his truth and I need to listen to this. So Anyway, I got on the plane and went to Italy and went to about five factories. And then I eventually found the factory that, that I'm with now. And I walked back into his salon about six months later with a set of samples. And, and he, said, he said, what are you doing here? And I said, Paul, I'm moving the color. And he said, you're effing crazy. And I said, I know, but you're the only one who knows what went wrong. So you're the only one who can tell me if it's any good. And so he started to test it and he would ring me and he would say, and I benchmarked it against two big multinational brands that were ammonia brands. I said to him, if it doesn't, if it doesn't cover gray like ammonia color, I don't want to do it anymore. And so he started to ring me and he would go, Josie, I've got Maureen and she's got white hair. You need to come and have a look. He said, I put an 8 on her, which is like a light uh, it's like a dark blonde. It's a very light color. And in light colors, you've got less pigment, so you don't get as much gray coverage. And he said, it's covered better than the ammonia color. And so then we knew we were onto something. So I've spent a lot of time with him. You know, he's like part of my family. I just, I couldn't have done it without him. And he 
So, yes, yeah, so I'm very involved with what does it look like on hair? How does it benchmark against competitors? Because we are trying to get that same result with less chemicals, and we've done it. I mean, the business wouldn't be growing like it is if we hadn't done it. Um, but, yes, yeah, so I'm very involved in the product and the formulations. Mm. Okay. So, you know, once you start getting a product that you're happy with that's working, what, when did it start to take off? I suppose I, I'm wondering about your, your former career where, where you said you were working in London, you were working in media. And, and marketing and sales, et cetera. Uh, how did that help you, you know, that background sort of take this idea? Now I know I've got a product that's going to work. Uh, how did you, you know, what are some of the challenges and things that you did to, you know, to get it to market? Yeah, so I definitely think that my background in, in sales and marketing has been significant. I think, you know, I, I was selling space in IT magazines and, you can see from the look of me, I really don't know anything about IT. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I was pretty good at it. And it was because I always was good about relationships and I could see what the customer wanted. And, you know, I was clever enough to pull a few things out of the the, jet, the uh, annual report from IBM that showed that in the Dutch IT market, they were increasing there. And then I would match my product to that. So... I knew a lot about sales and I didn't mind cold calling. So mm. I first started O&M cold calling with a German color chart. So the manufacturer only had color charts left over from their German distributor. I couldn't afford to make color charts. So I started that with that. And I had no problems about walking into a salon and being rejected. Um, and But I also had no problems in striking up a conversation with anyone. And this was well before, you know, you know, there was the internet or anything, but I would research um, the customer. So say if it was your salon, Anthony, which I would have loved to have got into, but I was probably way too scared to walk into that. I would, I would ring up first and say, hi, my name's Josie. I've got a really sensitive scalp and I wonder, do you use any products there that are low chemical or good for me? Because I'm also thinking of having a baby. And then you might say, yes, we use X, Y, and Z or no, we don't. And then I would ring back and then I would say, hi, I'm, um, I'm ringing from Hair Media. We're a media company. We're starting a new magazine. And, and I am lying here, obviously, and I don't want to advocate yeah, yeah, yeah. for lying. This is what I used to do. And I'll say, um, I just, I'm, we're going to send you out a free magazine. I would just like to know the salon owner's name. And then they would tell me. And if they were receptive, I would say, um, what's the head colorist's name? So that then when I walked into the salon, I would say, hi, I would like to speak to Anthony, please. Uh, my name's Josie. I'm from O&M. So I, it was just a, a different, I knew how to sell. I was never one of those people that walked in and said, can I talk to the salon owner? And I think now with Instagram and Facebook, you know, nobody should be doing that and, and online. So yeah, I'm, I'm quite a natural born salesperson. And then I've matched a product that I feel really passionate about. And so the two definitely go together. I actually think that we're all in sales, right? Mm, yeah, I do it's too, just, yeah. It's just that the ones of us that realize we're in sales do better. And I used to say to this to, to the hairdressers in our, in our salon that, you know, I would say to them, 
you're in sales and they would say, no, darling, I'm a creative. And I say, but you're in sales, you're selling a creative service, but you're in sales, you know, and, and a lot of them didn't get it. Um, but the ones that did, did, did really well. Yeah. We're selling our personality, our charisma, our knowledge, our education, our, you know, our understanding of what can and can't work. I mean, we're all selling. I mean, without a doubt, I couldn't agree more with you. Um, so, Josie, once the you know the product started happening, did you get any um, you know support from media or something? Because you're trying to break into this, you know, this this area that is is totally monopolized by big multinationals. And here you are, you've come out with this this you know product that you've invented of your own uh, and that you're trying to sell. So, you know, how did you you know get that sort of exposure that you needed to uh, give it the credibility that you wanted it to have? Um, well, not with any big marketing budget. Uh, to be honest, the first thing that I did was I I used to ring the beauty editor of Vogue, and I mean I was ringing a lot of the beauty editors, but I just I just loved Vogue, and uh, that went back to my grandmother who used to always have copies of Vogue, um, and I used to read them at her house. And anyway, I used to ring Caroline Padash, who was a beauty editor then, and say, I'd love you to come into my salon. We've got this ammonia-free hair color, and I've got my husband is a hairdresser from the UK, and we've got the best colorist who actually used to work for you, Anthony. Yes, Wayne. I know. I'm very, yeah. I'm very, have very fond memories of Wayne. Yeah, you trained Wayne, and I remember him saying to people, I was trained by Anthony Whitaker. He was always <laughs> very proud. Oh, good, um, well, I'm very and- proud of him and the way he's turned out. Oh, thank you. And I think I even dropped her name, your name to her to try and get her to come in. Wayne, our head colorist, worked for Anthony Whitaker. Anyway, and she would say to me, no, I've got my own hairdresser. I've been going to him for eight years. I'm very particular about my color. So anyway, I just used to ring her every day at the same time. And she said to me, are you going to ring me every single day? And I said, I am actually. And she said, I can't believe it. And I said, well, I really want you to come in. And so she said, okay, I'll come in. So anyway, at the time we had absolutely no clients. So when we knew she was coming, Wayne, who you may remember loves designer clothes, was said to me, darling, we've got to get people in here. So we got Alan's mum to come in with a good shoe and a good handbag and Wayne's mum. And we put color on their hair. So when Caroline arrived, we seated her and there were two other people in the salon. Otherwise, it would have been completely empty as we had zero clients. And then when Wayne had put her colour on, he went outside and he started ringing me and I was making fake appointments. And anyway, so the whole thing was just so funny. And literally the phone was not even ringing at all in those days. And so Caroline did this little write-up in Vogue about ammonia-free color that was like the length of my finger in the beauty pages. And it just snowballed from there. All the other beauty editors then started to come in. And then everyone was really happy with their hair. We did really look after them. You know, there was a very high standard. And we were happy to do the free work. And they be- they all became like a walking, talking billboard for us. And literally within the first year, the business went from Wayne and Allen to about eight stylists. And we turned over a million dollars in our first year, which back in 
2000 was a lot for us as a hair yeah. salon. Mm. But we just basically found this niche and the media uh, posted us as Sydney's first organic salon. Right. Okay. So that was a bit of a turning point. Yeah, that was a massive turning point. And then yeah. with brand, with the colour, to be honest, you know, we had sort of a diehard following of people that use the colour even through through all the problems. Like some of our customers um, are 10 years old, some longer, and they were just diehard. They just wanted to use more low chemical colour. And so, but the business really turned when we moved the colour to Italy and it launched in 2016. And, and you mentioned earlier that there is stuff in the media and there is stuff in cancer research and actually stuff coming out of the UK that sort of warns against PPD and other chemicals being endocrine disruptors. There's there's not hard evidence, but they sort of say, stay away from PPD. We believe you're 15% more likely to get breast cancer is, for instance, one of the things that's come out in the UK. And mm -hmm. in 2016, uh, October, we launched uh, Core Colour, which is the colour we have right now. And it's called Core because the core of the brand like an apple core was color. And um, literally in November that year, the UK Cancer Council came out and said this warning around PPD. And so then what I believed was always going to happen was that hair color was going to become a health choice. Then it did. And, and we became the sort of safer alternative um, and it had been at our roots and, and we were that, it was, a, you know, Instagram was making a massive difference. Instagram has changed so much, people telling their stories. And I also think we moved in around 2016 into a discovery age where people were wanting to connect with brands and their stories. And, and people were also able to Google chemicals and become so much more aware of it. So the business very swiftly, uh, grew between 2017 and 19 it actually grew four times the, the turnover quadrupled wow and i was very lucky that the minimum order when we did the order from the factory in 2015 was so large i had to remortgage my house and take a million dollars out of it and um it was just, I mean, it was everything that I had. And I was like, oh, my God, do I do this hair color? Um, and actually, at that time, because of our distributors, we were in about five other countries and we were having a lot of product problems and our distributors had started to run down their color in anticipation that we were getting this new color. So we had this big outlay, plus our turnover was going right down. I had business partners that were unsupportive and thought that I should give up on the color and didn't know what I was doing. And I'd recently gone through quite a significant divorce and all I had was the house. And so I decided to take a million dollars out of it. And I remember thinking at the time, wow, if this doesn't work, I mean, I've got nothing. Mm. Um, but anyway, I did it. And then because the turnover had gone down so much, I actually literally ended up being $100,000 short. And I didn't tell anyone because I generally don't tell anyone. And I remember being in Paul's salon, the guy that does the color testing. And he said to me, what's going on? 
why haven't you ordered it? Everything's ready. The color charts, the color, everything's ready. Why haven't you ordered it? And I said to him, I'm just having a cash flow issue. I'm just, I'm going to sort it out. And he said to me, what's going on? And then he said to me, how much do you need? I said, it's only a hundred thousand dollars. I'm going to sort it out. And he literally got out his phone and transferred me a hundred thousand dollars that he had. That was his savings. And he just said, just go and order the color. Wow, and so I fantastic. did. Yeah. So, and what, but what then, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. he's been amazing. And so the, the business, yeah. Then just over the next two years, we were just hanging on for dear life. Um, and nobody could have predicted what happened. So was he a partner in the business? No, he was just literally. He just believed in it so much. And he, he, he just believed in it. And he had a lazy me, hundred grand in the bank. <laughs> yeah, we've done, done so well. I mean, he's very smart, actually. He's, yeah. you know, been very smart with property and, you know, he's yeah. a very good hairdresser. And um, he just believed in it and he'd done so much work on it personally and he knew what the result was. He knew that we'd finally cracked it after getting it wrong because he'd been on and off with me for 10 years. Yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah, so that was, you know, one of those moments where someone's generosity just comes out of nowhere when you kind of think you've got no one. Yeah. The energy just moves around, you know, it always comes from somewhere. And and then because of that, you know, generosity and then, you know, my PA, Alex, she um, was the receptionist of our hair salon. When I when I first started O&M, um, apparently one day she always tells this story one day I said to her, oh, you need to advertise the reception job online. And she thought, what, am I getting fired? And, um, and she said, why? And I said, oh, because we're starting a product company and you're coming with me. And she has worked with me on and off for 15 years. She had two children in between and she's, she's back with me now. And, and then Diana, who's our product manager, she actually started with me in our kitchen, she was a product manager for a fashion brand and worked in fashion for about 15 years. And she was between jobs. And I said to her, oh, could you just come and help me for a bit whilst, you know, you're looking for another job. And, and she's still with the company. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of other stories as well that, and customers that have been around for such a long time that I, you know, I've been so lucky and so in actual fact, we have what we call a team equity pool. And a lot of these people are in that team equity pool. And in fact, I made a decision earlier in the year that we're going to have 1% of the company that belongs to the entire team, whether it's in the warehouse or, you know, uh, in customer service or accounts or in sales. We have 28 people now in Australia. And, and I just really want people to feel valued. And I think that there is, uh, you are nothing without the people, you know, you're only mm. as good as the people around you. And, and I've just been lucky that I've had people that have, you know, backed me and, and, and felt passionate about the journey as I have. So aside from, um, you know, remortgaging the house and, and, and getting a, a top up from Paul for a hundred thousand, what, what, what are some of the, you know, biggest risks that you've had to make or sacrifices that you've had to make personally to make sure that, you know, you could get this company going and meet the, you know, the outgoings that you obviously had? 
Yeah, so when I first got divorced and I think I mentioned that the company was losing about $300,000 a year, I had to work out very quickly how to get some money. And so and my daughter was in a very expensive private school and my son was in daycare and I, I was like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? And I've always had a real love for clothes and I had quite an extensive wardrobe and and um, so I started an eBay store and I got myself a mannequin and I started to put my clothes on eBay. And within the first six months, I'd sold about $50,000 worth of clothes. <laughs> and I was like, wow, maybe this has got legs. And so I started to tell the mothers at the private school that my daughter was at. And then they started to give me their clothes and I started to sell them on consignment and give them 50% of the sales. So I started this eBay store and then I realized that my house, which I couldn't afford to live in either, was my biggest asset. And it was when Airbnb was really sort of starting to take off. And I had actually thought that I was going to sell the house because I couldn't afford it. And then I got all these photos taken and I did some work to the house. And then I thought, actually, I love the house. So I used, I said to the real estate, I'm so sorry, you've helped me so much and I appreciate it, but can I just pay you for the photos? So I paid $1,000 for the photos and then I put it on Airbnb and I started to get between $800 and $1,200 a night for my house. And so when my kids went to their dad, I would go to my friend Allison's house and I would sleep on her couch or in her spare room whilst I rented the house out. And I was making like you know, $40,000 a year from doing that. And then I don't know whether, you know, your audience will know this, but when you go into a hair salon, they do this thing called swap out. Um, So say somebody's got 500 units of another company, they've got shampoo, conditioner, treatments, Mm -hmm. and they've got hair color. What is commonplace is that when we go in, we take all of that product out and we swap in 500 units of O&M. So we can end up with a huge amount of, product that we destroy or give to charity. Anyway, at this time, I decided I was the charity. And so I put them on eBay. And so I had my children lining product up in our lounge room and we were photographing it and loading it onto eBay. And then at night we were bubble wrapping it and then literally taking the car and the dog and the kids to the post office and filling up the the post box at night. We were just shoving them in there. Um, And so those three things were what got me through the two years after I got divorced when the, when the company was losing money and then I began to stabilize it. And, and, you know, it's funny because my business mentor now, Andrew says to me, you know, when, when I took on, you know, new business partners, he was like, okay, you're going to have to get rid of the side hustles. And I was like, (laughs) it was like in me, it was in me, the side hustle. Um, But, you know, there's just, there's just always a way. There just is always a way. And, and you can see the world differently now. And I just saw my house as an asset. And I also put it on like location things. I rented it out to a few people for locations. Like everything is different now. Yeah. So that was my side hustle. What, What an amazing story. And, and, and that is it. You will find a way. If you've got a dream and you want it bad enough, you find a way. And you know, selling your clothes, putting the putting the house on Airbnb. I mean, you know, oh, that's amazing. I love these these grassroots stories of how people bootstrap 
from the beginning and they find a way to get this business going. And look, not everyone succeeds, but it, it's amazing to hear uh, your success stories to how you've done that. So fantastic. And I appreciate the opportunity of, of telling it because I think so much about social media makes people get a preconceived idea about you as well. And, you know, we're all showing the best bits of our life, but, you know, Everyone is going through struggle and it's those struggle that make the best bits even better. And that's how we learn. And, but I just really, there is always a way there is no, there you're never trapped. So yeah, I would like people to know that. Yeah. Yeah. So you've, you've, you know, you've risked everything. You could have lost the house. You could have lost everything and on, yeah. the, on the roll of a dice, but your belief in it was so strong. You know, you just knew that this was going to work, that you were going to, you were prepared to do absolutely anything. I think, I think that's amazing because a lot of people, you know, they look at success stories and they think that, that you're lucky and uh, they often don't realize the sacrifices that you make behind the scenes. At that point in time, you'd just got divorced and you had kids and you'd taken yeah, possession yeah. of the house and, and you risk all that. I mean, that's a big, that's a big call that takes some serious Cajonas, I think is the technical <laughs> technical term. Um, so let, just tell us a little bit about the product range. I mean, how many products are in the range? I mean, how big is it now? Um, can I just tell you something just in relation to your last thing? There's something, yeah. I'm like Oprah mad, right? I yeah, listen yeah. to a lot of Oprah. And she said about luck, she said, people think that I'm lucky. She said, there is no such thing as luck. There's there's being ready for the opportunity when it comes. Yeah. And I've really thought about that since. And I think, you know, there's good energy, putting out good energy in the world and then getting good energy back because you put it out, like giving to not receive, just giving for the sake of giving. And then you stuff just lands in your lap as well because, because giving is part of receiving. But I do think that luck is not, it's, it's about, timing and being ready for the opportunity when it comes along. Yeah. So anyway, that's just my Oprah thing because I'm mad about her. Um, but the product range is we've got, I think it's over 230 different products now because hair, hair color is actually quite very technical. And I, one of my other missions is that I would like to elevate hairdressers because I think it's a very underrated industry. It's underrated on a skill level, um, and it's underrated on an importance to people. You know, I think coming out of COVID, hairdressers have come out as an essential service. They're the place that everyone's gone as soon as they've come out of isolation. But they're all also the kind of unpaid psychologist. They're the person that you tell when your husband's having an affair or you've got cancer or you're celebrating a baby. You know, they're, they're, they are like an extension of your family. And I think also, you know, you know, the way that sort of MasterChef and all those other TV shows really elevated chefs. I would really like to elevate hairdressers because if you've got, say, 200 colors, it's all in the hands of the user. So the color range that we have can be as good as we like. But if somebody, you know, mixes it up wrong and then puts it on, you know, so, so hair color is determined by whatever the person has to start with. So my hair, which is very blonde uh, versus somebody's hair that is dark, the same formula that they mix up is going to come out completely different so yeah so we've got um uh, over 200 products and the hair color is 
150 of that. And then we also have our own factory here for the hair care. I used a lot of contract manufacturers over the years and I had a lot of bad experiences with inconsistency of product. So I did something quite crazy a few years ago and decided to set up our own factory. And that's a whole other story that would need wine, but that's definitely <laughs> went wrong. And, and, and we, when I first started it, we employed an ex-chef and we had all the formulas and it is kind of like baking a cake and he was mixing it up. But, oh, we had so many stability issues. We had, you know, shampoos coming out like snot and separating. I mean, it was like insane. So that was a big learning curve. But I did eventually um, enlist the help of a very good chemist and, and decided that I would own a minority of the factory and let her own the majority. But we agreed that it would be an O&M dedicated factory. So the factory is here in New South Wales. It's solar powered. Um, so we've got our own little uh, O&M line with the Oompa Loompas, as I call it. And so we've got complete control over the product. So, you know, we had the first sulfate and paraben-free shampoo 12 years ago. And if anything, we were a bit ahead of our time. And now the clean from uh, philosophy that we have with all the products is, is much more extended. You know, we're free of lots of different chemicals. But originally it was sulfates and parabens was the first. Um, and, you know, when we first started it, it was like the – I. There was a few sulfate-free shampoos, but one, they didn't foam, and two, they were green and brown and they were in health food stores. And so I thought, don't glamorous women also want uh, low-chemical products? And why do they need to be green and brown? Why can't, they, why can't it look like a fashion brand? Because hairdressing is so much of a fashion industry. So all of our hair care products, the, sort of the shampoos, conditioners, treatments, uh, obviously designed to go with the hair color, but they're all high-performing naturals, um, uh, clean formulations, uh, but they feel like luxury and they look like luxury. Mm. So, and that's a, that's a very important part of the range too because people need to be able to go home and maintain their colour. Um, yeah, so it's big, it's growing. It's like, yeah, we've got more new product development coming next year. Um, and we really want to, to be able to supply the salon, everything from front door to back door, we call it. Right. So, you know, sometimes you have things in your range which aren't massive sellers that salons need. Mm. So, you know, we definitely have some of those as well. But, yeah, we want to be able to provide them with everything. Yeah. So you've got the full range of styling products, care products, and colour. You sort of everything. tick every box. Yeah. Now, right. Okay. Yes, sir. Well, yeah. What do you think about the, uh, the different routes to market? Um, uh, actually, no, let me get this out of the way first. Uh, how, so how many countries are you in now? Uh, we're in 15 countries now. Right. Um, okay. But our biggest, by far our biggest markets are um, Australia, New Zealand, and the US. Um, and But also, actually, interestingly, Scandinavia has been very significant for us. I think uh, in Scandinavia, they're very – uh, much at the forefront of chemicals and natural. And Sweden has always been a very good market for us. And, you know, in Denmark, they actually have uh, the most strict laws through all the EU. There are certain products that you 
um, there are certain chemicals that you can't have in Denmark that you could have in the rest of Europe. So we're compliant with complete European law. So that's quite significant for us. But yeah, the US is a huge market and very fast growing for us at the moment. Yeah. And it's all uh, through professional distribution. It's it's nothing direct to the consumer. Uh, we do have a direct to the consumer online store, but it's a very, very small part of our business. Um, yeah. But for hair you know, colour? Is that for hair colour or for styling oh no, and hair products? The, just for the, the hair care products. We think, you see, to be a, you know, to be a truly global brand, you do need some places that the product can be get globally. So, mm. for instance, we're on Nessa Porter. We were one of the first hair care brands. In fact, we were the first Australian hair care brand on Nessa Porter. And so because they're a global company, that gives us global reach. Mm. But it's a very tiny part of our business. But it's good brand positioning as well because sure. we want to be in that luxury end. Um, and we, we're on a few other online stores. You know, I originally went into Selfridges, which was a very big moment. Mm -hmm. um, but now, to be honest, we are not in any bricks and mortar retail. It's not where we're focused. We're in salons. Mm -hmm. uh, we believe that that relationship between the hairdresser and the client is such that they're making the professional recommendation. And, and that's where we, that's definitely where the majority of our business is and where our focus is. We're not planning on, uh, deviating from that, we're not on Amazon in the US. Uh, okay. we're, yeah, we're through salons. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of brands, color brands now. I'm talking like uh, L'Oreal have one uh, in the United States called Color and Co., and uh, Henkel have one again in the United States called E Salon, and there's a third one called Madison Reed. And, and what they are, they're this, they're, they're another route to market. So instead of color coming as a box color from the supermarket or professional only in a salon. They're like this middle ground territory um, of online color companies where just like I'm talking to you now over Zoom, you would be talking to me, a hairdresser over Zoom. I would be giving you a consultation um, based on your hair color and your natural depth and eye color and skin tones. And I'd be then, uh, you know, recommending a particular formulation to you. And that would be packaged off and, you know, sent directly to you. And particularly during this, and, and it's been successful anyway, it's been going for a few years, um, Esalon and Madison Reed and, and L'Oreal are, uh, are sort of recent players in the market. Um, and what I was going to ask you was, particularly in this year of COVID, they have done extraordinarily well. Um, what are your thoughts about that route to market? Is it ever something that you would, you know, imagine that that could be a direction that O&M could go in? Um, so, yeah, I'm very aware of those. And, you know, um, first of all, I believe that there's enough room for everyone. I do think that I can see why their businesses increased during COVID, but so did the O&M business as well. Um, I think it's not the way that they've done it is not how we would do it. Um, I'm not saying that we would never have a root touch-up kit but I think that we would do it through the hairdresser. Mm -hmm. I think that we would use do it through the hairdresser in the salon. Um, we wouldn't start sort of an offshoot of just an online company. So, um, yeah, I think that, that there are three types of customer. There's one that will only ever go to a salon. 
There's one that will go to a salon maybe four or five times a year and then color their hair in between. And there's a third one that will color their hair at home. Hmm. And I do think that there's an opportunity, particularly with the second customer that only goes to the hair salon a few times a year for the hairdresser to make a professional recommendation. And, and there, you know, there could be an opportunity for us around that, but whatever we did, we would keep it at our roots, which is with the hairdresser. We wouldn't, hmm. we wouldn't compete like that with our tribe. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, we, you started talking before about uh, about finance, and um, I know you said you know that, that you're quite happy to talk about anything. Uh, so I'm going to ask you to talk about anything. Um, you, you gave it. That was a great story before where you talked about um, Paul, who you know instantly transferred a hundred thousand dollars over to you to you know do the deal, so to speak, which I think is fantastic. Uh, I, I'm intrigued about that side of, of any sort of startup and how it happens because, you know, I, I know that there are often stories like that behind the scenes where you've said like, you know, remortgaging the house and risking any, everything. Um, and, and you've bought out your partners now, have you? I know you sort of alluded to at the beginning that you had, um, you know, different people. I think you said Wayne and your ex-husband were partners and then a, a packaging manufacturer, whatever. Did, did you buy all of them out so that you were then 100% in control of it? Um, so they are, they have all been bought out. When, when I got divorced, um, uh, our hair salon was doing very well in comparison to the product company that was losing about $300,000 a year. So I, you know, ended up with the product company and Alan's hairdresser. So he had the hair salon. It made much more sense. And plus my yeah. divorce lawyer was like, that's the only thing that's losing money. Do you want that? And I was like, yeah, yeah I want that. <laughs> she was like, are you sure? I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll take that. And um, so, but yeah, I had a... Um, uh, Wayne, who was our original hairdresser, and then I had another business partner, and I owned the majority share of the business, and I funded the business entirely myself uh, for most of the years. We made some uh, initial investments, but certainly in the last sort of four years with the growth, I funded it all against my house. So there's many different ways to get money, but I think when you first get started, it's a sort of a common myth that entrepreneurs take a huge amount of risk. I think mostly they start something as a side hustle. So the money that we started it on, which was 120,000, was 40,000 each between me, Alan and Wayne. And it was all, it was money that we could have lost. It wouldn't have been the end mm. of the world. Yeah. And then, you know, over the years, I've done things like debt factoring, which is where a bank, normally a tier two, like a smaller lender will say, I've sold you a thousand dollars worth of product, Anthony, then, um, they will give me $850 of that and they keep the other 150 but they chase you for the money. So they give me the money straight away and what that does is it gives me cash flow. Yeah. And I also did uh, stock financing as well because particularly in any business where you've got stock, all of your money tends to be in these warehouses and you can fund against the stock as well. So I did a bit of that. And then um, in the end, I actually bought uh, the packaging guys out two years ago. I signed a deal to buy them out. I borrowed the deposit off another great friend of mine from the UK. He lent me the first amount of money, which was 
about $600,000, had no idea how I was going to buy them out. And then what I did was I actually threw a big party to celebrate the buyout with no idea where I was going to get the rest of the money from. But I believe in thanking the universe for things before they've happened as if they've happened. So anyway, um, what ended up happening was because the business I told you grew four times the size over two years, I became on the radar for private equity firms. And I started to get private equity firms come approaching me left, right and center. And Andrew, who's my friend who I told you is my business mentor, he basically started to travel around the world with me seeing private equity firms. And I saw them in the UK and the US. And we did an IM, which is an information memorandum. And he basically said to me, I need you to write down if money wasn't an issue, what would you do? And so I did this whole plan of what I would do. And then I did all this competitor analysis. And then he made me fill out the most excruciating spreadsheet that I've ever seen that basically said the countries that I wanted to go into. I filled out how many salons were in there. Uh, what percentage of the market I was going to get, thought I would get, and then projections. And so we built this information memorandum, which is what a private equity firm wants to see. And I saw probably at least 15 firms and then uh, literally probably about a year and a half ago now, um, the business was still growing really fast and I was on this deadline for the buyout. And um uh, we started seeing them again and I got an email from a private equity firm in Sydney just saying, you know, we love your brand. We're an American originating firm, but we have got a branch in Sydney. We'd like to meet you. And I said to Andrew, I can't face another trip to America. I just want to see this firm and see what they have. And so they ended up um, buying a, large minority shareholding. So I still own the majority share of the company. And at the time, uh, Wayne, who was our original colorist, got bought out the majority of his shares and he's now in the team equity pool. And then my business partners got bought out at the same time. So it was an incredibly tense time. And my poor financial controller, who's with me right now, the day after he joined, I said to him, oh, um, I've got something I would like you to help me with. And he said, well, I said, I've had this offer from this private equity firm and they've given me this spreadsheet and there's 187 items of due diligence. And uh, could you help me with that? And Stuart, I mean, he was amazing. And so the due diligence was insane. Um, but anyway, I knew that I'd never stolen anything from the company. If anything, all I'd done was put money in over the years instead of taking mm. it out. I'd, I'd underpaid myself for years. Um, and I knew that they could go through everything and there would be nothing. Mm. Um, so, yes, I went through that whole process. So my life changed quite significantly last November when the deal closed and they came on board and you know they're just such nice people so I went from having a business partner who thought I was incompetent and who thought that I was mentally unstable and you know so many other things and just <laughs> whipped me for so long yeah. and you know maybe I am slightly mentally unstable and that's okay too because a little bit of crazy is what you need to you know but yeah, it's yeah. completely blindly back yourself even when you go wrong. Mm. Um, and so they are an American firm, and that, but they are 
you know, what they call a global investment firm. So they in, invest in uh, companies that have, you know, global opportunities. And also, you know, I was reading actually online the other day, only 2.7% of private equity in the US goes to women. And so I feel, I don't feel lucky, <laughs> but I was ready for the opportunity. Yeah, but I feel yeah. like, you know, and that's partly why I'm sharing the private equity part of the story as well, is that I think, you know, and there's also common misconceptions that with private equity, once you get that kind of support, that you are, you know, the brand is not owned by the founder anymore, which is completely incorrect yeah. with O&M. I still own the majority share. I have full board control. And the reason why I picked them was that they've had some of their investments up to like 22 years. There wasn't any fast sellout plan. Um, it was just that they saw that we were at the health end of the market in hair care and that there was an opportunity. And we wanted to use the money to help, you know, ride the wave that we were on, but also continue our research and development to be able to supply the best products to our customer and to stay at the clean end of the market. Yeah. Okay. Let me ask you about, you've just touched on it then, and unfortunately, we're, we're, I know we're going to run out of time. So um, this is the really important part, and that is the bit about being a woman in business. And I know it's 2020 and things have changed an awful lot in the last 20 years or so. Uh, but, and you said, you, you said it, I'm not saying it, that maybe you're a bit crazy. Um, and, you know, if you go back and look at the journey you, you've come on, you'd have to be crazy to do it in a lot of ways, okay? And you've done it and you've come out the other end of it and you've proved all the naysayers wrong. But I'm sure that there were a lot of challenges involved in that um, and being taken seriously just because you were a female. Am I right in saying that? And, and if so, talk to us about that. Yeah, so um, definitely. And particularly, obviously, when I first started and the it was probably eight years ago now that I started to do the international distributor circuit. So there's three big hair trade shows every year and I would go to those. They're in Italy, Las Vegas and Hong Kong. And I would see distributors and they, uh, most distributors are really, particularly at that stage, were run by men in suits. And so they would see me and they would say, you know, Josie, we love your product. We think you're a little bit ahead of your time. We like the packaging. Who owns the company? And nobody could ever believe that I owned the company. And then if I did say I owned the company, they would then be concerned about the financial state of it because then they would think, oh, this is a woman who started a little side hustle. It's not well-funded. And um, so anyway, um, they – and that was really what Andrew, who's my current business mentor – helped me the most with, he said to me, what do you need? And I said, look, I've got this new hair color. I've got a distributor who I need them to buy a million dollars worth of stock upfront and sign a contract for 4 million. And, and I, he said, what do you need from me? I said, could you come with me to the meetings and could you just say that you're on the board and that you look after the finance and the structure of the company? And he said, I will, but I don't know anything about your company. I said, that's okay. I'll do the rest. You just say that. So anyway, he came along to the meeting and he did say that. And then they signed the contract and they paid me the million dollars up front. And he was like, 
that is so unfair. I cannot believe that, that that probably wouldn't have happened if I'd come. And I said, I know, but never mind about that. I've got about five other of those. Can you come with me and we'll do it again? (laughs) So, you know, I mean, I just think I'm not going to change all these people that have a perception Mm. about women. So I'm just going to work around it. And that's Mm. my way of working around it. I mean, I love men. I've got some great men that work uh, at O&M. But I do think as well that hairdressing, you know, it's like 85% hairdressers are female. Mm. And we even looked within our own customers and 79% of our customers, the salon owners are female owners or female co-owners. So I actually think that hairdressing is doing something amazing for women in business. And, um, but yes, that, you know, it's we we've moved on a bit, but we haven't moved on. We haven't moved on a lot. Yeah. And uh, but women have got people like you. Yeah. It's people like you that, that, you know, set the path for others to follow. I mean, uh, so you know, you're a great example. That's why I love hearing you talk about this. I mean, how do you how do you balance? Because this is the other side of it. You've alluded to the fact you've got two kids. Uh, I know they're two young kids. How, how do you balance running this business empire? I mean, it's not a corner store uh, with being a mum of two kids. Um, so it's got easier as they've got older. Um, I've got better at it. Like I'm definitely much better at it now. I've learned that I need to try and be wherever I am. So if I'm at work, I try and be there, you know, fully be there. And then if I'm at home, I try and be here. Um, and so I, I sort of, when my kids finish school, say between four and seven, I don't really work that much and I try and have dinner with them and I'll only take the odd call if I have to. And then I've got no boundaries with time. So I'm happy to work after they've gone to bed. Mm. So I just think I've just got used to not having a huge amount of sleep. Um, it's better now, but I, I can work anywhere, anytime. And if they go to their dads for the weekend, I might catch up then. So mm. look, it's definitely an immense juggle. Uh, and then I'm good at taking time off as well during the school holidays. I do, I do cut off. But I think as well, the world has just changed so much that everyone's just got so much more flexibility now. Uh, the travel is the hardest thing. And, and COVID really grounded me, which physically and mentally. And I don't know if I'll ever go back to so much travel because I was doing about 15 weeks worth of travel a year before. Mm. So, yeah, yeah, look, it's an immense juggle and we all... We all mess up our children and I'm sure I've messed up mine and that will be part of their growth as well. You know, it's yeah. it's just what happens. Yeah, yeah, I understand that. Um, I, I've got one thing I wrote down because I'd heard it said before um, and I want you to explain what it means. Uh, well done, Josie. Oh, yeah. What does it mean? Yeah. What's the story well, behind that? I loved that. Um, I've done a lot of psychology work and I realised you know, we are, I, and having business partners who are very critical, I, you know, they criticized me, but I realized they didn't even need to because I was so hard on myself. Like I was like, oh my God, you don't even need to say all this stuff to me. And, and I realized that, you know, if you had a friend who criticized you like that, you, you wouldn't be friends with them. And yet 
we look at ourselves in the mirror and say, oh, my God, you look a bit fat today or, you know, oh, you did that really badly or, you know, we're so critical on ourselves. And so I decided to change my psychology around it and to pat myself on the back and go, well done, Josie. So even when stuff goes wrong, I don't crucify myself about it anymore. And I did. I did it for years. Mm. So, um it's not arrogance. It's just, I'm just being my own best friend and I'm being kind to myself, you know, in every situation. And I think that that has really made my life better. It really has. And I think that so much we're looking for perfection and perfection is so much about not being seen and being afraid. Um, And once you let go of perfection and, you know, you sort of embrace being vulnerable, you know, we just, you grow so much from that. That's where you grow. So yeah, my big thing would be, be your own best friend, you know, definitely grow from experiences and use the world as your classroom and everything is learning, but do not beat yourself up when stuff goes wrong because that's, that's where the learning is anyway. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, well done, Josie. <laughs> what else? <laughs> you know, anyone who's achieved what you've done in a very short space of time. I mean, you're only 10 years old, your product company uh, or yeah. thereabouts. It's, it's amazing what you've done. So, look, I know we have to wrap up. Whereabouts can people connect with you on Instagram or other uh, social media channels if they want to find out more about O&M? Uh, so, my Instagram is Original Queenie. Uh, without the E on the end. And um, and the uh, O&M one is Original Mineral. And, yeah, I, I use Instagram a lot and I love connecting with people, so people can definitely reach me there. Original Queenie, I'm, I'm named after our hairspray, which is called Original Queenie. I was always like – Queenie was actually my nickname at university because when I was 17, my mum said to me, darling, you must learn to touch type. <laughs> if all else fails, you can always be a secretary. So I was like, okay, so I can type like 80 words a minute. And when I was at university, when all my friends were working in shops and bars, I was working in um, offices, touch typing. And and when everyone would go, can we go out tonight? And we, there people would be like, I've got no money. And I would go, I've got money. And they would go, okay, Queenie's paying. <laughs> so all through university, I became Queenie. And then I thought, wouldn't it be good to have a hairspray called Queenie and people will like pass me the Queenie in salon. So that's <laughs> oh, where great that story. Happened. Great yeah. story. Okay. Well, I will put all those uh, links on the website uh, on, on my website, grow my salon business, and they'll be in the show notes here for the podcast. So if you're listening to this podcast with Josie and you've enjoyed it, then do us a favor, take a screenshot on your phone and share it to your Instagram stories. And don't forget to tag us in it. So to wrap up, Josie, Thank you so much for being on the Grow My Salon Business podcast. I'm sure you've inspired many a person out there to just what is possible if you're prepared to, you know, have the dream and be prepared to follow that dream. So uh, well done, Josie. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me and for your podcast. Yeah, I've really enjoyed listening to it as well. Cool. Thank you. Well, it's great. Thank you very much, Josie. 
Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you'll find us at growmysalonbusiness.com or on Facebook and Instagram at growmysalonbusiness. And if you enjoyed tuning into our podcast, make sure that you subscribe, like, and share it with your friends. Until next time, this is Anthony Whitaker wishing you continued success.